This is Green Tech, take five. I'm Scott Clavenna, CEO of Green Tech Media, and welcome to our occasional podcast series where we talk about the events shaping the markets of renewable energy, smart grid, efficiency, and transportation, and hear from our own editors and analysts as they parse the week's headlines or draw on their own research to help us understand the direction of this complex ecosystem called Green Tech. This week, we're talking low-cost solar and just how low it can go. All right, let's jump right into it with my conversation with Sean Mehta, Senior Solar Analyst at GTM Research, the market research arm of Greentech Media. We're going to talk today about a new report that's released today. It's called PV Technology and Cost Outlook 2013-2017, and it's part of a series of a long series of reports we've done here at GTM Research back since uh, we started in 2008, uh, putting out reports each year annually on the supply side of the solar market. Uh, this year, it's a little different. It's it's narrowed its focus uh, in this particular edition, and there's more to come. But this particular edition has narrowed its focus on manufacturing costs and the technology behind that um, and not so much about the supply and demand and, and price in the, in the market. So with me today is the author Sham Mehta uh, from GTM Research. He's our senior analyst on uh, the, the upstream of the solar market. Plenty to talk about here. I think first off, the, just the, the quick marketing we did around it with the, the headline of manufacturing costs are going down to 36 cents a, a watt in 2017. Uh, caught a lot of people's attention, and few of them uh, expressed some shock and awe and disbelief. I think sometimes they're misunderstanding. Other times they're just not quite ready to believe that uh, cost reduction is still ongoing in the in, in the solar industry. So maybe let's let's tackle that in two parts, Sham. So first, just define when you say thirty six cents a watt. That's not a market price. That's a manufacturing cost. Talk about like that and and what it means relative to history, and then um, a little bit about the the context of that in the overall report. Sure. So the thirty six cents a watt number is our base case estimate for industry leading Chinese uh, manufacturers at the end of twenty seventeen. So there's a lot of qualifications I just made before that number, which should all be taken into account. And probably the most important one is, you know, how we define manufacturing cost. That's one thing. So when we uh, say manufacturing costs for the purposes of this report, what we're including is depreciation of capital equipment, um, overhead, which is plant and property, also depreciation, uh, direct labor, so engineers and line workers, uh, all consumables, and utilities, so electricity, water, sewage, things like that. So, and uh, so these are all the manufacturing, all the costs that are involved in directly manufacturing a module. Uh, so, what it does not include, for example, is you know uh, things like insurance costs, shipping, warranty, selling general administrative costs, which includes you know personnel overhead um, and marketing. Uh, and inventory write downs, things like that. And the reason we don't include these is because we're just trying to get a sense of, you know, the manufacturing economics. And this is exactly what the, uh, you know, all the publicly traded manufacturers report every quarter. So it also helps us benchmark uh, against publicly disclosed information, which is also important because, you know, when we're presenting our forward-looking numbers, we need, uh, you know, we need to be assured and we need to give our audience a sense of assurance that we've been successful at simulating these costs in the past using whatever techniques they're using. And so we put a lot of work into trying, you know, fitting our, 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 our model and tweaking it 
such that it accurately represents historical data. And this is the definition of the historical data we provided. Um, also, it's important because uh, you know even though uh, in in a, looking at the fair value of a module, and this is one criticism that's made about some of our you know numbers, uh, you have to look at all the other costs I mentioned. Uh, because at the, in the final analysis, all of these have to be recovered. Uh, the other another one would be you know R and D costs. But we are trying to get a sense of you know the manufacturing economics of solar right now, and um, for that purposes, we're only looking at the cost directly involved in manufacturing the module. So that is our so 36 cents a watt, which is the number that's being thrown around uh, out of this report, is. Uh, that direct module manufacturing cost. Now, for purpose of comparison, it's the same metrics are using when, uh, you know, for example, Jinko, which is presently, I think, the uh, lowest cost uh, Chinese silicon-based manufacturing market. Uh, Jinko has declared, you know, its uh, manufacturing cost for Q1 2013 at 51 cents a watt. So basically, what we're saying is, somebody like Jinko, um, over the next five years, in our base case view and I keep saying base case because uh, you know, there there is a, a range of variance in real life given how much uncertainty there is. But our base case here is that a producer like Jinko is at 51 cents a watt right now. That 51 cents a watt will decline to around 36 cents a watt in five years from now. Okay, so I guess one of the observations to to make here is that the the speed of the cost reduction is actually slowing, even though that's an impressive number at thirty six cents a watt. The, the the rate at which it's reducing is decreasing, and so maybe talk a little bit about that. But also, you know, beyond thirty six cents a watt, is there a point where you know the the margins are so slim because of the the fixed costs that that go into manufacturing start to you reach the floor? Yeah, where do you think this could potentially end up, or is 36 cents starting to reach the, the bottom of the trend? So one of the interesting, I mean, the, from what I can tell, the general reaction to top-line finding of the 36 cents a watt of the report um, is it, generally a mixture of, you know, the reaction is generally a mixture of consternation and belief, saying, you know, this is a crazy number. It's hard to, you know, I've seen one, one Twitter reaction saying I, it's, a, it's hard to wrap my mind around. And frankly speaking, um, I don't quite understand this because what this implies is, an, you know, a compounded annual reduction over the next five years of less than eight percent. Now, combine, uh, you know, compare that to the cost reduction we've seen for someone like Jinko or Trina, you know, lowest cost Chinese manufacturers from 2009 to 2012. The annualized reduction over that time period has been 61 percent. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, so our, our base case outlook is actually very conservative compared to previous years. Um, and, um, you know, in response to the question you asked about whether there being, is, is there being, is there further room to run? So, you know, that's, that's part of the answer to that question in that there are, you know, there are, there is a very plausible world where conditions are more favorable for, uh, you know, cost reduction below our base case where, uh, you end up, you can end up with, uh, you know, all-in manufacturing costs for all the metrics I mentioned of less than 30 cents a watt, because our base case outlook, you know, for a, a few reasons, uh, has a pretty conservative outlook on some of the key metrics that influence module manufacturing. Things like uh, pricing declines for consumables, not just silicon, but for other module consumables, and technology uptake as well. Uh, our base case outlook on this is pretty conservative. So under more favorable conditions, 
um, there's actually a, you know room to run below 30 cents a watt. Now again, you know uh, when you think about that number, uh, you know sort of uh, off the top of your head, you you know, your head might start spinning. Uh, but again, the, you know what it implies is not a gigantic cost reduction. In fact, if you you know our variance analysis where we you know the, you try to understand the realistic range, uh, not just a point estimate, but you know a realistic upper and lower bound. The variance of that is around 24 cents a watt. Now, yes, in absolute terms, that's a, a huge number. But you know when you think about it in the context of the system cost, it's not gigantic. Um, so and and again, you know, our, our, that 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 uh, 30 cents a watt number I throw around, you know, the 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 annual reduction implied by that is again nothing compared to what we have seen in previous years. Um, I think this is my personal theory that um, you know the industry has a sort of psychological or mental block with uh, believing that you know module costs can go below 50 cents a watt. I mean. In fact, and one of the reasons that this report was even conceived of is, is that we are now in the region of, you know, like I said, Jinko is 51 cents a watt, Q1 2013, uh, where, where we, you know, no industry roadmap over the last three, four, five, ten years had us getting to this point. Uh, I, you know, if you look at any industry roadmap for crystalline silicon for the last three, four years, uh, generally, you know, things have stopped at maybe around 80 cents a watt, if not a dollar a watt. And from then on, there was, you know, that was supposed to be the holy grail. Uh, you know, we were targeting a dollar a watt, uh, it, it, reaching a dollar a watt in 2012, back in 2008, 2009. So it, no one really has any sense of where things will go from here. And what we're saying is under reasonably conservative assumptions, you can actually get to, you know, around 36 cents a watt. And under more favorable conditions, get to below thirty cents a watt. It's not unbelievable. Okay, no, that makes sense. Maybe this is a good time then to talk about how that uh, how that reduction is achieved, and right. um, and particularly, you know, that this is about technology. Technologies. Uh, yeah, I know a variety of other factors play into it, but on the technology side, um, one question I always have looking at this is. Is there a role that technology innovation is playing in this? Are there innovations that are actually driving down costs, or is this just continued scale, 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 manufacturing efficiencies, concentration of manufacturing in China, that kind of thing? How, how do you break those two apart? Right. So that's a very pertinent question, and that's one of the interesting um, findings of the report is that the drivers for cost reduction over the next five years are going to be very different from those we've seen over the last three to four years. So if you look at uh, the cost reduction we've seen out of the leading Chinese manufacturers over the last few years, the overwhelming drivers, and this is not a huge surprise, are declines in consumable pricing. So mainly polysilicon, but then also other consumables, uh, pricing for other consumables has dropped significantly as well. So, uh, you know, we're talking about things like steel wire for wafer slicing, um, uh, the you know, module frames, back sheet and capsulant, junction boxes, um, you know, crucibles and slurry. So around 65% of the cost reduction we've seen since the end of 2010 to the end of 2012 has come from uh, pricing and declines in, in the uh, pricing declines from consumables. Uh, technology advancements have only contributed 10% of the decline. Um, and scale another 10% roughly. So when you, um, 
you know, and it's worth stating at this point, you know, one of the sort of, you know, oft-held conventional wisdoms, quote-unquote, about uh, PV manufacturing industry has been that pricing for some of the some of the important consumables for modules, uh, again, you know, frame and uh, EVA for encapsulation would be two good examples. These are believed to be commodities, and therefore it was believed that pricing for these uh, these items wouldn't change a whole lot over time, since the PV industry didn't have much control and they were used for you know a number of other uh, industries which were much larger in volume. But what happened in 2010, 2011 is that we've seen a huge uh, influx of pure place solar suppliers of these materials, particularly in China, because uh, as a result of the you know really really healthy profit margins that uh, uh, suppliers of these materials had enjoyed over that time. Uh, and there was an undersupply, just like there's an undersupply of other components and materials back in 2010. So we saw a huge build-out of these uh, consumables in China, and we've witnessed a very similar oversupply uh, phenomenon uh, since 2011 for these consumables as well. So we've seen drastic price reductions to currently, you know, similarly unsustainable levels as we witnessed in the realm of polycyclic and wafer cells modules. Um, so that's also been a big driver. Um, now, going forward, uh, we think it's, you know, at least what we're assuming in our base case estimate is a very different state of affairs. We have a very conservative outlook on consumables pricing. So, in fact, uh, we are, our silicon price outlook uh, between 2012 and 2017 is flat. We're assuming the same number, $18 a kilo. Uh, we are assuming that pricing does actually uh, bump up over the next couple of years as the market consolidates and so, uh, you know, a lot of supply goes offline, but then we see a steady decline to around $18 a kilo in our base forecast, which is the same as 2012. So, you know, silicon pricing itself has nothing to do with our uh, our outlook to 36 cents a watt. Similarly, for uh, the other consumables, we have a pretty conservative um, outlook where we we're modeling in 5% annual decline in pricing for things like encapsulant, backsheet, et cetera, et cetera, whereas the historical decline has been some, you know, between 15 and 30 percent, depending on what material you're talking about. So, in in when you when when we're looking, uh, you know, over the next five years, technology is uh, the key driver uh, of cost reductions going forward. And uh, when I say technology, it is drivers like in, you know, improved conversion efficiency, uh, slightly lower wafer thickness, lower sawing loss, better ingot yields, more optimized uh, metallization solutions, so basically the paste that's used for metallization. But also for Chinese manufacturers, a big driver is going to be increased uh, automation in the manufacturing process. Because, you know, as some people uh, know pretty well, the Chinese use significant, significantly more manual labor uh, in the manufacturing process, you know, all the way from ingot growth to uh, module assembly than than Western or Japanese producers. So, you know, they've they've paid a lot less for capital equipment on a dollar per watt basis, uh, but their labor intensity is much higher and their labor costs are actually a bit higher. Now, what we've seen over the last few years is that China has been undergoing significant labor inflation. Um, so, it's going to get to a point in the next few years where the uh, the costs of having a more labor-intensive manufacturing model start outweighing the benefits in terms of lower capex. And, um, you know, we are assuming that somewhere around 2015, when we when we actually emerge out of this current downturn and when the capital spending cycle uh, comes back, 
uh, that Chinese manufacturers, at least the ones that can afford to do that, um, will invest significantly in uh, increased automation. And that takes a lot of cost out of the system. So if you're, if you're you know, going from this, you know, 50 to 54 cents a watt right now to 36 cents a watt, about 80% of that reduction in our outlook is driven by technology drivers and increased automation. Um, as And, and uh, pricing declines of consumables, which, like I mentioned, was 75% grow uh, 75% of the cost reduction historically is only going to be responsible for around 25%. So it's a big, big paradigm shift in, in terms of you know, what is driving cost reduction going forward compared to uh, what it was in the past. Great. So maybe we can move toward like the, the, the bigger picture and some of the bigger questions folks have around what ramifications does this have for the, the solar market in general as these manufacturing costs continue to go down? Does that actually help supplier margins are they are they going to benefit from uh this in any way or is it still sort of a race to lowest cost supplier wins and there's still too many competitors and this this doesn't necessarily lead to supplier health in any way it just drives down cost so so the other important thing to note and this is perhaps undermining the importance of this report is that in absolute terms our base case outlook is implying a cost reduction of around 14 to 20 cents a watt between 2012 and 2017. Now, if you look at that number in the overall context of system costs or solar electricity costs, you know that that's a meaningful drop, but by no means is it a game changer. So that's the other, uh, you know, sort of uh, area where I'm a little bit dumbfounded by the reaction because there's a certain section of the audience that has looked at the 36 cents and is reacting very positively to that, saying that. You know, wow, 36 cents a watt modules, we're going to, uh, you know, see a massive demand uptake, price elasticity, blah, blah, blah. Well, first of all, we're talking about cost, not price, right? And secondly, um, you know, that isn't exactly, you know, uh, going, to, uh, going to make a fundamental paradigm shift in solar electricity economics, going from 50 cents to 36 cents a watt. So what that means is that the onus of continued system cost reduction is most certainly on the BOS side. And efficiency increases at the module level can certainly help with that, but there are other more fundamental factors that uh, that need to be worked on to actually continue driving system costs lower. Things like um, you know, permitting regulation, um, as well as cost of capital. And here's where things get interesting. You know, In my opinion, module costs five years out will be low enough uh, that, you know, uh, that you have to start stop thinking in terms of perhaps dollar per watt and cost and think more in terms of value. So one of the important you know components of the BOS side of things is the cost of capital. And especially the expiration of the IPC and or securitization of, uh, of solar projects, you're going to have uh, you know a lot of discussions about the risk profile, the long-term risk profile of solar projects. Um, so you know, you, you'd be in a scenario there where, you know, you could have technologies or uh, instruments such as insurance uh, that would actually, that could increase the system cost by a few cents or the module cost by a few cents. But if they could result in mitigating the risk profile uh, or, or a 25-year period, could actually result in lower cost of capital and net-net result in lower LCOE. I think the takeaway from 36 cents a watt shouldn't be that, you know, that um, it's going to open up doors to previously unforeseen uh, market potential 
rather that uh, you know there is limited room to run lower for uh, the you know module costs as a as a component of system costs uh, as a whole and solar electricity costs as a whole and we need to start thinking about more innovative ways outside of the manufacturing process to continue driving the levelized cost of electricity further down even if those result in an increase in system costs all right good so let's Let's actually circle back to something you mentioned earlier around uh, the technologies and their influence on the cost decreases over time. So do you want to single out a few that that stood out in this uh, year's study as really going to have the, the most impact or the ones that uh, maybe people aren't paying uh, attention to? Sure thing. So, I mean, before we even begin, one thing to say is that, you know, over the next five years, our technology uptake outlook is pretty conservative. Uh, given you know the state of the industry today, given the capital constraints surrounding spending for new equipment, no one's buying new equipment right now. Um, and even though there are a lot of technology solutions you know uh, available uh, on the market today, those that require complete retooling or replacement of existing capacity are not going to be favored very heavily, um, even if they result in you know significantly lower cost of ownership over the course of their lifetime. So we've accordingly we've we've had a pretty conservative outlook in terms of you know technology uptake, um, and 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 actually some of the the you know the, the more dis, uh, potentially more disruptive technologies uh, like FBR silicon and diamond wire sawing for multicrystalline wafers, for example, um, you know we actually not taken into account in our base base case forecast. Another one would be continuous. Uh, continuous ingot growth for monocrystalline technology, what's known as continuous CZ. Another thing we haven't taken into account, which could significantly lower the cost for for, for monocrystalline silicon, all because you know we there is some uncertainty about at what rate these technologies get adopted. So the ones that we focused on for the purpose of this report for multicrystalline silicon are larger ingots. Uh, ingot sizes have been uh, increasing. You know. Uh, over the course of the last five, six years, um, you know, starting from, you know, uh, about three, four years ago, uh, your average multinational ingot was around 450 kilos. Now it's around uh, 650 kilos. And by 2017, we think that will start to get into the 1,000 kilogram range. And the reason that larger ingots matter is because the larger your ingot, the lower your percentage sawing loss is, uh, the faster your, your throughput is, um, the lower is your, uh, the, the, the percentage of scrap, or uh, uh, or uh, and the higher is the percentage of what's called a, a waferable mass. So that's one factor. Uh, we're also seeing wafers get slightly thinner compared to uh, what they are right now, not significantly, but slightly. Um, we're also seeing uh, we're also anticipating that the sawing wire thickness will, will decrease again from currently around I think 120 or 130 microns down to 100 microns which will reduce uh, curve loss or sawing loss. Um, there's a number of technologies that are already on the uptake that will uh, boost conversion efficiencies. So we're looking at, you know, best-in-class multi-crystalline conversion efficiency right now, around 17.4% in 2013. We think by the uh, end of 2017, that would be around 18.4%. Uh, so just 1%, but... Uh, and any improve, improvement in conversion efficiency results in uh, significant savings in uh, dollar per watt costs. That's really a, a very key lever. And then, um, you know, on the cell side, we're looking at 
continued reduction in the usage of uh, silver in the metallization phase, both as a result of using narrower fingers, um, as well as using reformulated metallization plates that actually use less silver. And at the same time, we're able to increase conversion efficiency. Um, and then finally, we're also anticipating that cell-to-module losses will continue dropping over the course of the next five years. So when you take all these factors together, uh, that's what gives you that, you know, that, uh, that reduction on the technology side. Now, that's for multicrystalline silicon. We have a slightly bolder technology uh, up, uptake outlook for monocrystalline silicon where we see uh, diamond wire sawing um, becoming industry standard a few years from now. And that results in a pretty meaningful savings because uh, diamond wire, which is basically a steel wire embedded with diamond coated particles, uh, is used to saw wafers. And right now it's much better optimized for monocrystalline wafer sawing than multicrystalline uh, wafers, although efforts are underway to, uh, to, to use them for multi-CSI sawing as well. But what the, the benefit of diamond wafer, diamond wire sawing is that A, the throughput is much faster, up to three times as faster in some cases, and it also doesn't use any slurry, uh, which is the uh, medium of uh, uh, polyethylene glycol, which carries these abrasive silicon carbide particles which actually perform the cutting action. So if you use diamond wires, the diamond particles themselves do the sawing. You don't need the slurry. That saves you some, some cost. You get better yield. Um, and the, the major barrier to the uh, adoption of diamond wire was the price of the diamond wire itself, which used to be in excess of $300 a, kilo, uh, a kilometer uh, a few years ago, now has dropped under $100 a kilometer. So under current conditions and going forward as well, uh, diamond wire is going to be quite a bit of a game changer in the monocrystalline industry. And it's already been adopted by some of the leading suppliers. And then another factor we do see uh, playing some influence is the adoption of selective emitter technology in the monocrystalline domain as um, the standard, uh, the, the efficiency gap between standard mono and standard multi, we see that contracting pretty significantly. In fact, it has over the last couple of years. So selective emitter will continue to give uh, P-type monocrystalline technology, some life will extend the life of this uh, uh, of, of this technology, boosting efficiency by around 0.6 to 0.8%, um, and again reducing uh, manufacturing costs because of that increase. Even though there are material cost increases and capital equipment expenses associated with adoption of this technology, so uh, you know, saying having said all this, you know, anyone who's at all familiar with the technology side of things can see that there are a lot of disruptive technologies that we haven't taken to, into account in our base case forecast. Like I said, there's FPR silicon, there's continuous CZ, there's quasi-mono ingot growth, there's uh, backside passivation, uh, things like frameless modules that, you know, if you can eliminate the aluminum frame from the module and use use frameless modules for certain kinds of installations, you can save three or four cents a watt. So again, you know, when, I, when we talk about that 36 cents a watt number, uh, it's it's very important to keep in mind that there definitely is on the technology side um, uh, room to run uh, even lower than that. Okay. Among all of the factors contributing to manufacturing costs, which one do you think it maybe has the highest volatility or the greatest risk going forward that could drive the, cri the, the, the price or the, or the cost up? That's an easy one. On the material side, it's silver. Um, so silver is used um, at a, as a metallization solution, it's used as a to provide electrical contact uh, between the surface of the cell 
and uh, the, the the interconnect wires that take, carry the current out of the cell, right? And silver has by far and away the best overall properties for fulfilling that function. However, silver is a rare metal, and the and the the, the PV industry, even though at this point is using about ten percent of the global supply of silver, has no control over silver pricing, um, mainly because it's used as uh, as a speculative instrument, right? So there's a great deal of trading that goes on that has nothing to do with, uh, you know, the intrinsic value of silver or it's, you know, it's, it's used as a, man, as, as, as a, as a metal. Um, so it, we've actually seen silver pricing uh, rise uh, in early 11. It rose from, you know, levels around $25 a troy ounce to as much as $45 a troy ounce. And that caused a lot of grief for sell suppliers back then. Um, so, you know, our base case forecast assumes a 5% increase in the price of silver pace going forward. But the truth is that, you know, uh, 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 things could be much worse than that if you're looking at cost reduction as a positive. Um, now, on the flip side, though, what we anticipate and which we have seen since 2011 is that because of the increases in the price of silver, We've seen a, a, a huge effort by the industry to reduce silver consumption. Therefore, so we use narrower fingers um, on the cell as well as use space with less silver in them. But there is a limit to how low you can go, obviously, before the before it actually affects the performance of the cell. So you know in, in there are you know there is a scenario where silver prices rise. Uh, I would say you know two levels at which you start seeing some real uh, significant cost increases. In, uh, in 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 the manufacturing process. Now, the the solution to that long term is to replace silver as a metallization solution, and the most obvious suspect is copper, and that's exactly what Tetra Sun, which is you know made a name for itself by being acquired by First Solar, this high efficiency manufacturer. Tetra Sun actually uses copper as a metallization solution, uh, but um, you know at the moment this is not something in this in the industry is very comfortable with copper. There are a number of um, uh, of, of negatives using copper as a metallization solution, and we're still a ways away from, you know, mass adoption. So that's definitely one factor that could throw a spanner in the works, and which we take into account in our high case forecast. Um, the other factor, as I mentioned before, is labor. Um, you know, and we have seen labor inflation in China. But again, um, you know, when, if if the Chinese manufacturing model starts uh, transitioning to what you know, what I would call a, 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 a Korean or a Japanese model, where you have uh, you know more uh, equipment doing the job of manual labor, then that can actually mitigate that quite significantly. Uh, it's more a question of you know, will there be capital to invest in this uh, in, in more equipment? And by the 2015 timeframe, we are uh, assuming that you know the the, manuf the Chinese manufacturers that make it through this current downturn. Um, and that are supported by the Chinese government will uh, be able to invest in increased automation and uh, more advanced technology platforms. Okay, so that's all the time we have left for today. Thanks for listening, and thanks, Sham, for your insights. Uh, a couple of notes. We now have two podcasts here at Green Tech Media. There's Take 5 that you're listening to here, where we'll be talking to our analysts and editors about the green tech market and their own insights and research. But then we also have... Now a new one called The Energy Gang, hosted, moderated by Stephen Lacey with Green Tech Market Luminaries, Jigger Shah and Catherine Hamilton, plus some special guests along the way. 
Stephen's already launched, Energy Gang, so you can see the first few episodes on our site and on SoundCloud, and now it will be on iTunes as well. So look out for that. It's going to be a regular weekly podcast roundtable talking mainly about policy and technology developments in the green tech market. So we're all very excited about that here at Green Tech Media. So thanks again and continue following us on our site, greentechmedia.com, and look out for our research at gtmresearch.com. Thanks.